0: Welcome back to Behind the Drapes. I'm your host Kenny. Today we have a very special episode. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Fred Rotenberg, who is ready for retirement. After around 40 years of service to the Department of Anesthesiology at Rhode Hospital and Merriam Hospital, Dr. Rotenberg is moving on to bigger and better things. But before we're leaving, we're going to recap his career and talk about all the major highlights and how he got to the point where he is today. From all the residents at Brown University, I wanna say a sincere thank you to Dr. Rotenberg for the impact that he's had on all of our training and taught us lessons that most of us will never forget. At the end of the episode, you're gonna hear us go through all the Fred Rotenbergisms that he'll be remembered by. When you go up to the EP lab or you talk to different surgeons and different nurses, you can tell that Dr. Rotenberg is very loved and very appreciated in our hospital. It's a sad day, but an exciting day for Dr. Rotenberg to get to retirement and get to go golfing and skiing and spending more time with his family without further ado let's see what's been going on behind the drapes with dr rotenberg go ahead uh
1: i've got some things i can talk about including my research from way back when when i was an undergrad and then a grad student and then a a resident so it goes the stuff goes way back
0: okay okay uh, I think the first thing I want to ask you about is how do you think the Patriots put themselves in a position to make the playoffs this year? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not relevant, uh, but I think uh, the defense has to do the, 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 the yeoman's work.
0: Do you think they're going to make the playoffs this year? No. No.
1: But that's you, okay.
0: What do you think the key is for next season?
1: New New offensive coordinator and new quarterback.
0: I could see it happening. I got gotcha. you. All right. Take, take me back to your research days. Then, where did you go to undergrad?
1: Let's start even before that. Uh, I, went, I started in under, but let me start before that. I, after high school in 1968, I joined the Coast Guard Reserve and uh, I became a hospital corpsman. So my first exposure to medicine was as a, it was like an LPN essentially as a hospital corpsman in the Coast Guard. And I started that in 68 and stayed in the Coast Guard Reserve for about 10 years throughout my college career and into graduate school as well. Um, and then in undergrad, which I was at Wash U in St. Louis, mm-hmm. I got very lucky. I got involved in some research at the medical school as a, a junior and senior in college. And I was doing research on pulmonary hypertension and the effect of of uh, Uh, the prostaglandins in pulmonary hypertension. So I did a dog study where we created surgically created pulmonary hypertension with a Blalock operation in dogs and then asked the question, does endomethacin affect that uh, creation of pulmonary hypertension, which in fact it did. Uh, So this was just before the whole prostaglandin and, and closure of patent ductus came out. How were how you measuring
0: the, uh, pulmonary pressures at that time?
1: Pulmonary vascular resistance, and then we did pathology on the dogs as well. It was chronic administration of indomethacin, and I compared that with uh, antihistamines, which didn't do anything. So we had a group of control animals, indomethacin animals, and uh, chlorpheniramine malleate, ant, 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 antihistamines and showed that the... Um, Indomethacin increased pulmonary vascular resistance and made the pathology worse, the pulmonary hypertension worse. Um, but that never got published, which was unfortunate because I was a mm. college senior at the time and I was fooling around too much.
0: <laughs>
1: but anyway, that was my first introduction to research, which was really very exciting and great.
0: What made you and so went, interested um, in the heart at that at a young yeah,
1: age? Vascular it's your cardiovascular pharmacology and physiology. Yep. Mm-hmm. And continued to be interested in that for many years, obviously, since then. Um, then I went to medical school. Um, I'm sorry. Then I, before medical school, I was uh, getting a, a master's in pharmacology. And I started that at University of Rhode Island. And my master's thesis was on the effects of caffeine on cardiac irritability or arrhythmias. And what I showed is that acute, and this was in the rat population. I did a rat study where we gave increasing doses of, of caffeine orally to rats and then assessed whether or not it affected their ventricular fibrillation threshold. In other words, how much current it needed to cause arrhythmia. And I showed that caffeine acutely did increase the risk of tachyarrhythmia in the rat in a dose-dependent fashion. And then I asked the question, well, what about chronic administration? And I found that chronic administration reversed that effect. And in fact, the animals became tolerant to the caffeine and then actually became less uh, susceptible to arrhythmia with chronic caffeine, which I later then showed was related to down regulation of the beta receptor because it had to do with, I did an isopraterinol dose response curve mm-hmm. to look at um, heart rate, uh, increases in the heart rate with isopraterinol. And that effect was blunted in the in the chronic caffeine rat. So that was awesome. my... That was my uh, graduate school work. And then I went on and I worked at at, uh, the Lowne lab in Boston at the Boston uh, School of Public Health. Dr. Bernard Lowne was a very famous, I think he's still alive, by the way, very famous cardiac arrhythmia uh, cardiologist. And I did research there in his lab looking at clonidine and its effects on cardiac arrhythmia. And again, that uh, reduced the risk of uh, tachyarrhythmia related, and this is in the dogs related to uh, autonomic nervous system stuff. So for many years, I was interested in autonomic nervous system and arrhythmias and cardiovascular physiology and pharmacology. Hmm. Anyway,
0: should I keep going? I have I have a couple questions uh, okay. just to refer back to the research that you did regarding. Um, the dogs and originally how were you calculating pulmonary cap wedge pressure was somebody floating a swan in these dogs yes Yes. wow okay so they would place probably a right-sided ij uh cordis i don't i don't
1: remember that to be honest this was back in 1973 or 72 i don't remember exactly how we measured pulmonary vascular resistance but we calculated pulmonary vascular resistance okay
0: my uh, next question was going to be with the rats. How were you monitoring EKG? Was it like uh, electrodes the, that you're able to place on the chest?
1: Surface EKG. I've got a, I got some pictures mm. I'll send you related to that master's thesis on caffeine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a, a surface EKG. We did an open chested model um, of, of a rat mm. and stimulated with electrical current and, see, and determined how much current was necessary to cause the arrhythmia.
0: Mm-hmm
1: and as the, the caffeine rats showed they, they needed less current to cause the arrhythmia And so they were more susceptible to the arrhythmia
0: wow incredible and were you, how would you inject the rats
1: po i gave more oh, i used okay. it. i remember for 2 years i was give, i was going to the lab every night to feed the rats caffeine or water one or the other
0: how In did this affect program. how did this affect your caffeine intake
1: it didn't change it a whole lot
0: did did, did you drink coffee Yeah. Okay, okay. So you didn't see any concern for cardiac arrhythmias within yourself at that time?
1: No, but (laughs) I was just curious about whether or not, because everybody said caffeine was bad for people with arrhythmia, and it was not well-founded, and there was not really good literature on it. So that's why I wanted to study it.
0: Fascinating. And then um, go ahead. I think you were just about to get started about your medical school career now.
1: Right. So so that research I was getting my master's in, in pharmacology, and I was working on my PhD, and that's when I was working up in the Lowndes Lab in Boston. Um, and that was pretty neat. I really enjoyed that. There were some really amazing people at the School of Public Health and at Lowndes Lab. Anyway, so after that, I went to medical school. And in medical school, I didn't do a whole lot of research. I was basically doing just uh, you know the, the typical medical student stuff. But my first introduction to anesthesia was actually at the Miriam Hospital because I was a fourth, uh, fourth year or third year medical student. And I remember Dr. Kathleen Hittner was the anesthesiologist who I spent some time with. Then it was a four-week elective there, and I remember getting very fascinated with the whole uh, practice of anesthesia. And I really enjoyed it, so I um, uh, decided that was that was one of the reasons I decided to go into anesthesia. But my the other reason I went into anesthesia was my wife convinced me I didn't want to be a cardiologist because I think my other thing I was going to be was an invasive cardiologist or. A, EP doctor, Uh but this was before EP was in existence. EP EP really didn't start till probably the Mm -hmm. nineties. How
0: did your wife convince you to out of cardiology?
1: So she said her, her grandmother would call her cardiologist in the middle of the night. And she she didn't want any people calling (laughs) me in the middle of the night to bother me.
0: That seems like a reasonable request.
1: (laughs) So, so she talked me out of uh, cardiology and talked me into anesthesia. And I went along with it because I thought it was a great idea based on what I did at the Miriam. Um, I actually spent an interesting month out in um, Northwestern. I was looking for residency slots when I was a senior medical student. I went to Northwestern to their anesthesia uh, department and had two episodes that were uh, remarkable, I would call it that. One was I was involved with a, um, a patient who had... Uh, a dermabrasion. This was back in the old days where they, the plastic surgeons would do a dermabrasion. And the surgeon said, don't tape the tube in because I have to, you know, work on the whole face. I said, yes, sir. Uh-huh. And he said, don't worry. If the patient gets extubated, I'll re the patient for you because my <laughs> attending had already walked out the door. Uh-huh. I said, okay. Sure enough, the patient gets extubated. I run around to the head of the bed, re the patient. And my attending anesthesia uh, comes in and says, what's going on? And I said, I was like shaking my boots because I was like a fourth year <laughs> student, didn't know anything about anything.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I said, well, fortunately, we re-intubated the patient because the patient got extubated. He said, oh, good work. <laughs> so that scared the crap out of me. But I, I decided based on that, that anesthesia was a lot of fun.
0: Uh huh. That's amazing.
1: And then another story, a similar story, I, I was taking care of a patient uh, who had quadriplegia and was having, uh, uh, what's it when you have a sympathetic uh, discharge? Uh-huh. Autonomic hyperreflexia. Reflexia, yeah. So the same attending who was with me that from the other episode said, This is a drug called nitroprusside. He said, if the patient really gets hypertensive, we'll give him this drug nitroprusside. I said, Yes, sir. So sure enough, the patient got really hypertensive. I drew up nitroprusside in a syringe straight out uh-huh. of the, the vial.
0: Without so that. I was outrageously,
1: you know, overdosed. I would have yeah. outrageously overdosed the patient. And I plugged it into the IV, but didn't give any. And the, and just then, again, the attending shows up, realizes immediately what's going on, walks over and grabs the patient's arm to reduce to prevent the IV from running, to make sure that the IV didn't go into the patient and get any of the nitroprusside. Yeah. So it was two episodes as a fourth-year student doing anesthesia that scared the crap out of me, <sighs> but made me uh, really enjoy, uh, fall in love with the idea of doing anesthesia.
0: Oh, it's incredible. Isn't it funny that something that could terrify you so much is what draws you in?
1: Yeah. I decided this is something I need to know about.
0: Um, (laughs) You could save a life someday.
1: Yeah. And so that was my first, the first two introductions I really had to anesthesia. Um, So then I applied for residency and I got accepted to Mass General, which I thought was a great program. And I decided to take that opportunity. Um, and I remember we started in a in a rolling uh, start date. There was not not everybody started July one. They started people in a rolling date, so the you know you didn't have all the rookies there at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I started in September, um, and and I had a a great group of uh, colleagues who started with me, and I became friends with them for the whole residency program. I forget all their names, but anyway, great group of people. How many and years really, was?
0: How many years of anesthesia at that time?
1: It was uh, two years of one year of medicine and two years of anesthesia. Okay. Um, and I did my medicine internship at Miriam, actually. Oh uh, I did a month or two of surgery, but I was primarily a medical intern. Mm-hmm. And that was okay. That worked out well. And I liked being here in Providence because my family was here, and my wife, we just had a new baby. Mm. so my yeah <laughs> my, my young my oldest son was born when I was graduating from medical school.
0: Wow, it's a busy time of life for you.
1: Right. The the month I graduated medical school is when our son was born. Inter,
0: son. Intern year must have been very, very busy.
1: Very busy. My wife did a lot of work that year. Uh-huh. And my folks helped out too, which was great because they were living right around the corner.
0: Are you, that were, was you, great. were you born in Rhode Island? Yeah, born and raised.
1: Okay. My parents are born and raised. So I'm one of the few people who is really a Rhode Islander in our department.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And then so you went to MGH and then decided to come back to Rhode Island after that
1: yes it was a little more complicated that after mgh uh, my two years i decided to do a a a cardiac fellowship cardiac anesthesia fellowship Mm -hmm. so i had to wait around for about six months because they there weren't there wasn't an opening at at the mass general until the following i guess was summer or whatever and so uh, i did a vascular fellowship in the vascular anesthesia fellowship at mass general for about six months and then I was an attending at uh, the Mass Eye and Air Infirmary, which was right next door, to make some money. I did that for six months, mm-hmm. and then I started my cardiac fellowship. And during the cardiac fellowship, uh, I used to moonlight at at Cambridge City Hospital, which is now just called, I think, Cambridge Hospital, which was fun, and I and I enjoyed making the money because it was, relatively speaking, you know, good extra money yeah, you we were allowed yeah. to do that at the time. So that was good.
0: Was Boston expensive back in the day, too? Yes. Boston yeah, was expensive. It's still very expensive,
1: but what was neat was I got to take care of some really sick people and and got some great experience. I remember one night I was on at the at Cambridge, and I was doing a uh, a ruptured triple A. and And just as we're finishing that, a crashing c-section comes in. So I remember like running like crazy from the uh-huh. patient that I dropped off in the ICU then to the uh, uh, CSA, emergency C-section.
0: Wow. Were you solo practice at this time or were you supervising CRNAs or residents? No, there? I was by myself. Wow. Wow.
1: I was a cardiac fellow at the time. Okay. But I was by myself that those nights when I was moonlighting. Yeah. So the point is I got to do some really scary things, which again was a good experience and, and taught me a lot of stuff. But uh, fortunately, I survived and the patient survived. So that was all good. <laughs> well That's
0: good. great. What did a cardiothoracic fellowship look like when you went through it?
1: So there were three or four of us. I don't remember the exact number. There were three or four of us at a time. We had three cardiac rooms at the general every day. And we did probably about twelve hundred or 1,000 or 1,200 open hearts each year. So we got lots of exposure. And I, I was lucky enough to work with some great attendings. One was a guy named Ed Lowenstein, who was one of the first guys who did high dose narcotic anesthesia for cardiac anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And he was a great guy, brilliant guy. And I got to work with Dan Philbin's dad. You know the Dan Philbin here. Yeah, the, the car- yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. His dad was a cardiac anesthesiologist at Mass General. And in fact, was chief when I finished up my fellowship. Huh. So that was great. And he was a great guy as well. Yeah. And there was a guy named Demetrius Lapis, who was an old-time guy, a Greek guy, uh-huh. who was spectacular. This guy could, could using a Swan gans catheter, he could tell you everything you wanted to know about the patient, including where they were born and, and how old they were. <laughs> so, I mean, it was unbelievable what this guy could learn from a, from a, 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 a PA catheter. Uh-huh. And so that was great. Great teaching, great clinical experience. The only thing that was not great was the surgeons. Mm. They were a pretty nasty crowd by and large
0: hmm how did you get by?
1: I survived. I kept my mouth shut, uh-huh. which took a little, like, little uh, work, and <laughs> uh, I survived. Um, but by and large, they were not such nice people, the cardiac mm-hmm. surgery.
0: When did echocardiography come out in your career?
1: Well, I was an attending at Rhode Island. Okay. So much later, probably 10 years later. Uh, I, I came in 86 to Rhode Island. And I'm guessing it was not till the mid-90s that we started doing ECHO.
0: Do you remember how that sort of shifted uh, cardiac care in the OR?
1: Well, initially, uh, not not all the details, but initially it was used in val- mostly just valvular cases. Uh-huh. And it was done <clears throat> with the cardiologist coming down to help us. So initially, the cardiology attending would come and put the probe in and look, and we would, you know, look over their shoulders kind of thing. hmm And then over the next few years after it first started, we became more more, uh, proficient. And I remember taking courses and reading textbooks and eventually taking the board. There was a board exam for ECHO, Mm -hmm. which I remember taking out in Vancouver one year, um, which was great because immediately after the exam, which was really a tough exam, Uh I went skiing up in Whistler. Amazing. So that was great. Uh, But that was probably in the mid 90s or or late 90s mid to late 90s I'm guessing okay and then later on it became you know routine but initially it was mm-hmm. just used on the sick valve patients
0: besides echocardiography what do you think has been one of the biggest technological advances that you've seen in anesthesiology
1: well clearly ultrasound absolutely okay. um, propofol um end tidal co2 cuz when i first started we didn't have end tidal co2 um, LMA, uh, what else? Sugamidex, Mm uh, what else? I'd say those are the biggies.
0: Mm -hmm. And what brought you back to Rhode Island hospital? Was it to be closer to your family?
1: Pretty much. So when I finished my training, we could have either gone out to Chicago, which is where my wife was from, or I got an offer to be an, chief of anesthesia at at Barnes and and cardiac anesthesia at Barnes because I knew the chief of anesthesia there. Mm -hmm. And so I turned down Barnes because I didn't feel I was quite ready to be chief at that age. Mm -hmm. Um, And I turned down Chicago because the commute would have been about an hour and a half each way. And I decided Providence sounded pretty nice because it was only a 10-minute commute uh, from my house to the hospital. Yeah. And again, being close to my family was a good thing and that was okay.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And how long well, did you, you, you stayed here your entire career, correct?
1: Yeah, so I came back in 86. I started in 86. I was the 13th physician within our anesthesia group at that time. Arthur Burt had started about a month or so before I did. So he and I were the two young guys who started cardiac anesthesia at, Mass- at Rhode Island. Uh huh. But prior to that, it was all done by whoever the uh, first call doc was. The first call anesthesiologist would do the cardiac cases. And there were one or two nurse anesthetists who were proficient in cardiac, and they were there routinely. So we we did away with that system and decided to start a a, a formal cardiac team, cardiac anesthesia team. So Arthur and I started that, and uh, we built, we started doing about when we were at our peak, we were probably up around eight hundred hearts a year uh, over those next ten years or so, because this was from the late mid to late eighties to the mid to the late nineties and maybe even later than that. And then we got up to about five or six cardiac people on, um, people on the cardiac t- that point, hmm. but but initially it was just Arthur and I for quite a while.
0: So you must've been pretty busy then.
1: Yep. We were very busy. Yeah. We would do two or three hearts a day. Um, and then later on we did more because we had two rooms routinely uh, and then Maslow came. I think Maslow came in the ninety late 90s. I'm not uh-huh. sure when exactly came. Uh-huh. And then uh, other cardiac people came and and some people left, but Scotty McKinnon came. else? Well, I'm trying to remember other people. Who is it? Carl Schwartz was on the heart team at one point. Hugh Cowden. Uh, who else? I think that was about it. Anyway.
0: So are you... In our current department, have you been here
1: the longest? There's one person who's been here longer than I, and that's Nuri Ralphie, Dr. Ralphie.
0: Okay. Do you know him? I have not met him, but I've seen the name on the schedule.
1: So Dr. Ralphie is probably in his early 80s, uh-huh. and he came here in the 19, late 70s. And he was here as a resident and then stayed on as an attending. Huh. And he's been here ever since. But I think he's officially retired actually now. Okay. Uh, but he's been doing um, uh, ECTs. ECTs for probably about 15 years. Got it. So stopped doing other anesthesia other than the ECTs probably about 15 years ago.
0: Was he here when you were a medical student
1: at Brown? To be honest, I don't remember. I assume he was, but I don't remember. Because yeah. I was a yeah. medical student. I graduated medical, medical school in 81. Mm-hmm. So he probably was here at that point.
0: Gotcha. Um, one thing I wanted to cover with you was how you were created the opportunity to create your own medical student uh, rotation for the Brown medical students.
1: Well, there were two things. Number one, uh, there was one, another. It, there, there was that rotation already set up um, and uh, Donna Kacharski, I don't know if you know Donna kacharski she was an anesthesiologist at the Miriam. She did the rotation with a couple of other people and I came in and I decided I wanted to do that. So I said to her, "Let me join you with, join with you, and do it." And she said, "Great." And then shortly thereafter, she said, "You know what? You do it. I'm not going to do it anymore." <laughs> but I took over and and uh, fell in love with that. I thought that was a great thing to do, teaching one on one. Rather, than, I'm not a big, you know, proponent of lecturing, but I am. I like teaching one on one. I think you can learn a lot of stuff that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like all the students that I talk to love it. Um, actually, when I talked to Dr. Asher. When I did one of his interviews, he mentioned uh, doing the rotation with you when he was a Brown medical student, and that being one of the reasons why he wanted to go into anesthesia.
1: I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) That's wild.
0: Pretty cool. cool. Um, Do you remember when, I guess, it. I mean, obviously it wasn't that long ago, but when we were transitioning to having the residency program here? Yes. Were you excited? Nervous. Yeah. What were you most nervous about?
1: Um. Whether we could have enough people who who liked to teach, hmm. because I felt there were there were a lot of people who really weren't great teachers or didn't want to teach, uh-huh. and there was some resistance I think among those people. I was willing to do it, and I because again I like teaching, right? Uh, but I was nervous that there wouldn't be a a, a core group that could teach. And then the yeah. other question was, were we going to have enough good material, and enough good residents, and uh, enough you know, ICU stuff, et cetera. But Gil did a great job putting this together, I must admit. He mm-hmm. did a great job.
0: Mm-hmm. And I feel like you've clearly taken on an active teaching role for the residents. There's I try a, to. <laughs> when I think about whenever I think about sort of the things that you've instilled in me, it seems to be it seems to resonate with a lot of different residents because you have certain things about the way you teach and the way you practice uh, that you feel very passionately about. And you could probably guess some of the things that I'm going to rattle off here.
1: I'm sure I can guess.
0: <laughs> so I'm going to go one by one and ask you where the importance of it came from and why you like to teach about it. Um, okay. And the first one is going to be ketamine.
1: So ketamine, I've had, I had experience many, many, many years ago with high dose ketamine in cardiac. We used to use high dose ketamine in cardiac. We used to use, put like 200 milligrams in a, in a burette and let it run run in for induction. And I was worried about some of the uh, side effects like uh, hallucinations and, and agitation and, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. So then I decided, well, what about low-dose ketamine? So I started doing low-dose ketamine probably about 20 years ago. And uh, I, I, in my day-to-day practice, I realized that I could get away with much less narcotic. And I hate narcotics, quite frankly, in terms of what they do to people. Mm-hmm. So I try to minimize narcotics. I mean, we still use narcotics all the time, but I I wanted to minimize narcotic use. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I found out was every time I gave fentanyl on induction, the next thing I had to do was give phenylephrine after I the the tube was in. Two minutes later, I had to give phenylephrine. If you didn't give the the fentanyl on induction, you didn't have to give the phenylephrine afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I said this is crazy. So I, that was many years ago. I did that. I started doing that. Okay. Uh, my second one is magnesium. So magnesium, not quite as old as ketamine. Magnesium, I'm not sure how I first started using it. Um, but I I remember somebody talking about arrhythmias, tachyarrhythmias, and magnesium being a drug for tachyarrhythmias. So I first started using it for tachyarrhythmias, and I, I, I really fell in love with the drug for tachyarrhythmias. And then I decided, well, what about its antihypertensive effects, which were uh, pretty apparent as soon as I started using it um, and then basically switched over from beta blockers because I used to use beta blockers instead mm-hmm. labetalol or, or metoprolol or something like that for hypertension mm-hmm. and drop and went to magnesium and based on some of the analgesic properties and some of the, um, the fact that it's not a bronchoconstrictor it's a bronchodilator I thought was very good and mm-hmm. it's a great drug for rhythm issues I think for tachyarrhythmias So I just started doing that. You know, what I found is that if you have an idea and it's not dangerous, I mean, obviously you got to be careful, but you should pursue it. Mm -hmm. And even though it's not a randomized prospective controlled study, it's okay to try it and see if it works. And then you really should be doing the prospective randomized studies to prove the fact, the point. But unfortunately, in our practice, that wasn't easy to do. And I basically was didn't have enough time to do that. So, which is mm. disappointing, quite frankly. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the next thing I'm gonna mention is being able to get an EJ.
1: Just do it. I just started doing it. Cause I remember uh-huh. in the old days doing central lines with the EJ. And I said, well, if it's so easy to do a central line with an EJ, although it's not that easy cause you gotta go around the corner at the clavicle. It's certainly easy to do a short line, a, just a, a peripheral EJ. And I I I think it's a great thing to know how to do, and I recommend it highly.
0: Has it bailed you? It, has it bailed you out of difficult situations?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The point is, it's easy to do, relatively speaking. It's it's not dangerous. It's readily accessible. Um, you can draw blood from it. You can now you got it's not it's it's a little tricky because sometimes you have to pull back on it to make it run. Um, but EJs are great, and we should be teaching it and pro- and promoting it more.
0: And the last thing that I always hear in the back of my head in your voice is the Miller blade,
1: the Miller blade, Bobby Rivera, who was a nurse anesthetist with me. I remember one of the cardiac guys I mentioned from early on in my my career used to use a Miller three on everybody. And he said, you got to learn this thing. I said, okay, Bob, show me. (laughs) And he taught me how to use a Miller, a Miller blade, both three and two. And I will tell you that saved my butt many, many times. Hmm. One more thing. Palotting mm-hmm. the cuff. We didn't talk yes. about lot the cuff.
0: Yes, palotting the cuff.
1: Another thing that is should be done, I think, routinely, because it's easy to do, cheap, and very important.
0: Absolutely. I, I actually, I, I, I do that all the time now.
1: I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a room and found the tube in too deep and asked, to you the cuff? And they said, no. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, I don't know why they don't, but they don't, people don't.
0: Yeah, it's once you realize what the exact feeling is of feeling the cuff being belotted then it's a very, it's a very simple thing to do right after it takes innovation. practice i
1: agree it takes yeah. practice
0: yeah what, else? what, what else? else
1: do you do you have any that's all i got disconnecting the the adapter from the endotracheal tube and putting alcohol wipe and sticking it back in i've had that happen before um the z-shaped stylet for the video laryngoscope
0: mm-hmm.
1: i did this with a medical student i wrote a letter to the editor i think um I forget the name of the publication, but we wrote a little, edit. he wanted to do a project. So I said, let's look at this. And one of my colleagues at the Miriam, a guy named Agarwal, Suchit Agarwal, was one of the anesthesiologists. He said, let me show you something, because we were having trouble one day with the video laryngoscope. So he showed me how to do it. I said, this is great. we got to publish this. <laughs> he said, it's going to save people's lives. Yeah. So I wrote a quick little letter to the editor with the medical student. We published that, and that turned out to be another helpful thing.
0: That's incredible. So I think that's the list pretty much. I think that I think that's the list too. Uh, well, we have a few minutes left here um, and you've sort of come towards the tail end of your career. We had our professionalism award uh, like about a month ago now where you were honored and recognized for being a really integral part of this department um, and really in such a young residency program, so foundational, I think in everyone's experience and everyone's education. Um, So I want to thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart and honestly, probably on behalf of my co-residents for being such an incredible teacher and really creating a great residency program and a great foundation for us all going forward.
1: I'm very honored. Thank you so much. I I will tell you, it's been a great joy. There have been some tough times, but all in all, I've been very impressed with the, the, as I said, with the residents and with the the faculty stepping up and I think uh, Gil has done a great job, as I mentioned, uh, in terms of getting the program going. Uh, and as I said, I've been pretty lucky because this was my home and I got to make it a really nice place uh, and and it worked out very well. So I've got two more weeks uh, and then i uh, going to hang up the shingles or hang up the stethoscope for at least a while. They think they're, they're asking me to come back for the week in February for uh, school vacation week. So I may end up doing that.
0: Okay. What's your last what, official day? Uh,
1: the 20th, January 20.
0: Okay. All right. Perfect. That's what I'm going to put this out on your last day. Great. Um, I want to, I want to leave it with two questions. Yes, um, Ken. The first one is how did you know it was time to hang up the stethoscope? And then the last question is, what are you going to do with all your free time now?
1: When was it time to hang up the stethoscope? Well, I'll tell you, I started thinking about doing it when I was 65. I'm now 71, um, and uh, I still enjoyed doing the work, but I was getting more and more tired, uh, and uh, um, my skill set has gone down a little bit—not terribly, but a little bit. It's been noticeable to me, and I want to go out on a high rather than after I've fallen apart, kind of thing. So I started thinking about it when I was 65, I said, I'll, I'll wait till 70. A couple of years ago when I was turning 70, I, it was COVID and I said, all right, I'll hang around because I got nothing else I really want to do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I decided to wait another two years. Um, so this is that's essentially why I decided to do it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm going to do is my mom is now in her late 90s and I need to take some time to take care of her. Mm-hmm. And my grandkids are in there, you know, early uh, elementary school age and they're six and a half and four so I want to spend some time going down to Philadelphia and spending more time with them uh, I want to do some skiing I want to do some golf in the summer I want to do some learning Spanish I think Spanish is an important thing to know mm-hmm. um, and I, I'm, it's interesting I was just I was thinking about I was reading yesterday the the recent anesthesiology journal the green journal and I was reading some of the papers and said, you know, this is still fun looking at what what they're publishing and asking the question, you know, how does this affect my my uh, professional career in terms of changing my practice?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I encourage everybody to, to, to be active in terms of their thinking about how to make our practice better mm-hmm. rather than just accepting whatever the, you know, textbook tells you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's what makes the whole thing fun. Because I don't think I would have done this for 40 years if it weren't fun.
0: You've definitely made it look like fun, even at the tail end of your career. Thank you. I don't it's think I've important. ever seen you in a bad mood when you're at, at work. So it must feel like every day is vacation when you enjoy what you do.
1: I agree. It's been great. That's what are you awesome. going to end up doing? Did you decide? Yeah, you I'm doing, doing cardiac.
0: I'm doing critical care next year. I'll be better. That's up, up right. At critical Israel. care in Boston. Yeah. Yep.
1: Good luck to you. That's a great Thank career. You.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: All right. Anything else?
0: I, th- I think that's it. Thank you so much, Dr. Rohnberg. This was awesome. You're welcome. This was a blast thank- talking to you.
1: Thank you again. Take care. Of
0: course. I'll see you later. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Drapes. If you like what you hear, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can get all the new episodes of the show as they drop right to your homepage. If you really, really like what you hear, be sure to rate and review so that other people can find the show easily and also tell a friend so they could check it out too. Special thanks to all the guests who come on the show and help make my job a lot easier and hopefully make an entertaining time for you guys to listen to. We'll see you next time.